Greetings, everyone. I'm uh, here to share with you some of the news about nonviolence in the U.S. and worldwide. And speaking of the U.S., uh, I'm happy to report that our new president, President Biden, has started off with some really good moves from the point of view of peace and nonviolence and general humanitarian awareness. For one thing, he's poised to end the U.S. support for the war in Yemen, which is being carried out by Saudis, not exactly as our proxy. I don't really pretend to know exactly what the dynamics are there, but it is a war that has caused incredible humanitarian suffering. It's being carried out with American weapons, and uh, he has vowed not to provide those weapons any further. So that's a really good thing. In fact, in terms of world peace, there is a plan now a 10-point plan to make him a peacetime president, which had two decades of war and four administrations. So that won't be easy, except I might mention that his immediate predecessor did not start a new war. So there's a little bit of a momentum there. You can find more about this if you look up an author by the name of William Astor, A-S-T-O-R-E, and you can find about that plan. President Biden has also ordered the Justice Department to end the use of private prisons. And, uh, you, you know, you may not realize at first how important that is, but private prisons are really subject to abuse. If you want to get a grim sense of how bad it can be, just read the journals of George Fox and what happened to him in private prisons in the 17th century in the UK. But also in his first day of office, he overturned the Muslim ban. He rejected the KXL pipeline, rejoined the Paris Accords, of course, and as he said, he would. So a very interesting question for us is, to what degree were these actions made possible without the persistence of grassroots movements? It's been claimed that they came about because tens of thousands of people signed the Pledge of Resistance to stop that pipeline. Uh, it came about because millions of school children had gone on school strikes on Friday. So it raises an interesting general question, which is how do you decide about uh, invisible effects in nonviolence? Classic example here being the civil rights movement in the South was partly violent, uh, not very much, and partly nonviolent. So some people say, well, it was the violence that really created the changes. And others say, well, it was really the nonviolence. So what you decide depends upon your vision, your outlook, or what they used to call in ancient India, your shraddha, your, your faith about what the world really is looking like. And so once again, I'd refer you back to an article that we discussed last time by Stephen Zunas in Yes Magazine that uh, builds the best case, I think, for the fact that popular movements behind the screens, including what you might call the threat of Satyagraha, uh, really made a tremendous difference. In nonviolence, we don't like to use threats in the sense that unless you do something we want, we will do something you don't want. But there are times when you have to alert the opposition that if they insist on following a particular course of action, you're going to have to respond in a particular way. That's only fair. 
And um, Gandhi points out that in the five satyagrahas that he discusses that took place in India, satyagraha being in this case, active resistance, that by the time you reach the end, all he had to do was say, if you don't withdraw X, Y, and Z, we're gonna to have to perform satyagraha. And the government responded, they withdrew it. So uh, in another very encouraging development here in California, there is a truth and healing council that has begun its historic work to investigate the abuses that have been suffered by the Native Americans in the state. And uh, this will bring us eventually, and I think in our next broadcast, we'll be talking about the question of reparations with uh, my colleague, Charles Henry. So there have been international models for this uh, in Canada, New Zealand, Australia, but this seems to be the first time this is being done by a state. And it's going to consist of a dual action to correct the historical record, which is extremely important, to acknowledge wrongdoing, which is tremendous opening for change and for reconciliation, and uh, to order tribal-led consultation-informed councils to go forward on a regular basis. So in Virginia, now this, again, a similar development, Virginia is just about to become the first Southern state to abolish the death penalty. And uh, we're hearing cheers now from Virginia residents here in the, uh, in the Met office, or people born in VA. But I want to move abroad a little bit to the biggest social movement that has happened in our time. And that is this farmer struggle in India, where upwards of 2 million farmers converged on the nation's capital, Delhi, to protest uh, agricultural laws that were proposed that would, they said, would just basically strangle their livelihoods. So recent anniversary of Gandhi's death, which was the end of January and the, the start of what we call here the season of nonviolence, they went on a day-long fast and they said they are committed to remaining nonviolent in their actions. Now, there have been some instances of violence in recent days, particularly in January when they breached the security barricades around the Red Fort in Delhi, and they uh, entered it or stormed it, depending on how you look at it. This also brings up the question of a variety of tactics. They, they have done some other things. There have been strikes, boycotts, roadblocks, occupations, something that they're calling industry solidarity actions, which is, starts to sound a little bit like constructive program. All of those things are very good, but it does seem that if they want to go further, and they say that they do, they want those laws abolished. They want them off the books, not just suspended. This is just remarkably similar to what Gandhi did in South Africa. And this is one of several examples around the world now where people go out and protest or strike. Then the strike doesn't succeed, doesn't get what you want, and they don't have another tactic or method to go on to. And so they get stuck. So this is where the education in nonviolence and all of its methods becomes important. And 
I'm going to mention the classic text by Gene Sharp, which lists 198 methods for nonviolent resistance, and those have now been expanded. The fact is, they're basically infinite methods. Once you have the right attitude, you have the right spirit that you're not against your opponent as a person, you're against whatever injustice it seems to you that they are perpetrating, and you're doing it for their good as much as for your own. Once you have that basic attitude and you can learn about nonviolence, it really seems you can apply it just about anywhere. Well, uh, you know, I used to say it couldn't happen here. We couldn't have a coup in the United States, but we, we had the start of one on January 6th. And unfortunately in uh, Myanmar, a coup just did happen. So nonviolence again has a very big repertoire for methods that you can take to defeating a coup, just as they have the same methods that you can use for bringing down a dictator after a coup has happened. So this part of the capacity of nonviolence has been well documented in the texts that we used to call strategic nonviolence. Nowadays, I like to call it more behavioral nonviolence because it focuses just on external behavior and doesn't get into the mental state underlying that behavior, which is what we try to do here at Meta. So still moving around, there, there really is so much to cover, I can only skim the surface. But in Peru, doctors, at least some of them, have begun a hunger strike over their working conditions during this pandemic, which of course is a terrific strain on healthcare professionals. I have some of them in my family. So they say that the financial commitments of the government haven't been followed through on, and they set up a makeshift tent outside of the Ministry of Labor and the health offices, and they claim they're going to stay there until they get the response that they want. So one of them is lying on a mattress in the middle of the street, hooked up to an IV for fluids. That's the way medical doctors go on a hunger strike because they, they know what to do. So this brings us up to the question of fasting. And I think it's good to realize that uh, while it seems to be just about the second, if not the first knee-jerk response of people who have a grievance, we should realize that it really can't just be done anywhere, anytime. In the course of his career, Gandhi conducted about 12 major fasts, that is to say, fasts unto death, not just a penitentiary fast, I'm going to do this to clean up my own spiritual act for a week or something like that, but a fast where I am not going to eat until this thing gets redressed. And if you carry on with what you're doing, you're going to be responsible for my death. Now to do that and make it work well is not easy. He felt that of those 12 or so that he did engage in in the course of his long career, some of them worked brilliantly, some of them were kind of ambiguous, and some of them failed. And that's him who was the past master at this. But he said it should be a last resort. It should be consistent with everything in your campaign. That is, you can't be acting violently and then decide to go on a hunger strike. It should be done only against a, quote, a lover that is somebody who cares whether you live or die and has the capacity to respond. It should be done with a very clear intent 
very clear trajectory, desiring certain outcomes. And those are most of the rules that you have to really be able to observe. You also, uh, one of the more important ones is you have to be the right person for the job, just as it has to be aimed at or offered to the right kinds of people who are somewhat capable of responding emotionally and otherwise, that you have to be the right person to do it. You have to be really willing and able to succumb if your thing is not granted. Otherwise, uh, fast unto death is kind of a fraud, a bluff, and that's not too good. So I'm going to move on now to some resources. Everyone is coming through beautifully. The International Center for Nonviolent Conflict is, among other things, launching the, for the fifth time a very unusual course. It's an information-packed and participant-led online course. And this one is called Civil Resistance Struggles, How Ordinary People Win Rights, Freedom, and Justice. It's uh, going to start on March 4th and go till April 22nd. You can find out about it on nonviolentconflict.org. That's one word. The applications are due the middle of this month, February. So when I say it's a participant-led course, that means it's not a instructor having material that he or she presents and to which the participants respond, but the participants have been chosen. It's kind of like, more like a, a, a big seminar where everybody goes in as a participant. And Occupy Sonoma County has a YouTube of an excellent presentation by Daniel Solnit on effective action for climate change. And OSC occupies Sonoma County has the link for that. Now on the 10th and the 17th of this month, in a thing called peopleshub.org, there is going to be a, a course on restorative justice. And restorative justice is one of the major institutional forms of nonviolence on the domestic level. And we often get information about how to do restorative justice from indigenous peoples, because that is the kind of justice that they often had. So sure enough, there is something called the Indigenous Peacemaking Initiative, which you can find as peacemaking.narf.org. That's Native American Research Foundation, I believe. And this one is called Spiritual Healing, a more Hawaiian way to deal with delinquent kids. A man named Esteban Servat sparked a movement of tens of thousands of people in Argentina by releasing a secret study, Shades of Edward Snowden and other friends of ours, that revealed the negative impact of fracking in a particular mountainous region of Argentina, region of Mendoza. And from this came the idea of eco-leaks, which is a, uh, a kind of a version of WikiLeaks, but more focused. And it will serve now as a platform for valuable environment-related leaks. It's going to start soon, we hope, when it gets the funding. Also, Campaign Nonviolence has a huge list of resources that they're offering for the season of nonviolence that I mentioned earlier, 
We are now in the first week of that. It, they have a nonviolent cities project, uh, something called the Nonviolent Life Campaign Nonviolence Pledge. Pledges can be a very useful instrument in nonviolence. And finally, Rivera Sun has written an article called What the Anti-Coup Campaign Taught Us. It's uh, an important lesson in the power of nonviolent social movements that does not often make it into the headlines. Finally, I'd like to share with you, speaking of courses, a kind of quiz. Go to a website called www.huntsabs.org.uk. That's huntsabs, H-U-N-T-S-A-B-S dot O-R-G dot U-K. Because it will tell you about a group that is sabotaging hunts, uh, like fox hunts and seal hunts. And it raises really interesting questions for us in nonviolence. What they're doing is clearly something that a nonviolent person would support. Saving the lives of animals. And, and we know that cruelty towards animals is closely related to cruelty towards fellow human beings throughout history. The ancient philosopher Porphyry in ancient Rome pointed this out a long, long time ago. Uh, and so from the nonviolent point of view, we would appreciate what they're doing. But to analyze it uh, as an ideal or not so ideal nonviolent tactic, that brings up some interesting questions. The questions we want to ask ourselves are things like, is this persuasion or coercion? And how does this relate to a technique that's often used here which is sabotaging, you know, they call themselves saboteurs. When people destroy equipment, it could be very dangerous equipment, military equipment, uh, but it's not their own and they destroy it. It takes away the opportunity for the opponent to change his heart and mind, to do it himself. You remember that famous episode that uh, we're going to mention short, well, I can't remember it because we haven't told you yet, but we're shortly going to mention an episode where uh, Bernard Lafayette and they had succeeded in winning at a lunch counter again in Virginia. And Bernard Lafayette said, let's go on and do the rest of them. And James Farmer, who was the guru of the movement and the great strategist of that time, said, no, Bernard, let them do it. Let them decide to segregate their counters rather than us putting pressure on them. That's how we will know we won. So that's the thought I'd like to leave you with uh, here today and look forward to communicating with you further in a couple of weeks.